0: Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jim DiDucci, and this time round, we're doing 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is a really interesting one to do, because in it, it talks about history, well, prehistory, and also It made history, and technically, it is inadvertently about history. And also, it's part of film history. So, it is just one of these cornerstone movies which so much has been said and written about it. But I'm going to look at it at a slightly different way. I'm pretty sure that almost everything I have said has been said at some point with somebody else. But probably it's not all been in the same documentary because, like I say, the history stuff probably isn't being talked about as much. So if you don't know what 2001 A Space Odyssey... Directed by Stanley Kubrick, which came out in 1968, is... The answer is it's complicated. Well, obviously, it's a film. But the interesting thing is, the idea was created by Arthur C. Clarke. He'd written a short story which had got Stanley Kubrick thinking. And the two of them actually collaborated on the screenplay, so that when the movie came out, the book written by Arthur C. Clarke also came out, which helped fill in some of the blanks. And indeed, something that a lot of people don't realize is that 2001 A Space Odyssey is the first of multiple books that Clark wrote about this story. The next one was called 2010, which was turned into a movie in the 1980s. It was largely pillared by people and indeed i've seen an interview with the director who spoke to stanley kubrick and said i'm not as good a director as you i can't make 2001 again and kubrick came up with a very reasonable suggestion going make it your own thing don't try and do this again it's a bit of a one-off just take the story in the direction and the tone that you want it to do and That's a brilliant suggestion. Thank you very much. But there's also, I think, 2069. There may be another one in there somewhere, but the last one was 3001. So there are quite a few books about this if you like this sort of thing. Where to start with this? Because where to start in the movie? They they had problems with that. Where do I begin? Okay, I think I'm going to start because the thing where I can easily bring it into history is the fact that the movie doesn't open in the year 2001, which, obviously, from the perspective of 1968, is in the near future. But actually, it starts in the Paleolithic, the dawn of humanity, where we get to see hominids. Now, what's a hominid? Hominids are ape like humans or human like apes, they are pre homo sapiens which is the species that we all are we are probably going back two million years to the great rift valley in africa what kubrick is showing there is the dawn of humanity and things like the use of tools now i am going to go into that in a lot more depth at the back end of this podcast but first things first it's just amazing you're not sure what's going on it's like hang on i'm Paid my money to see a science fiction movie, and there's basically all these ape men whooping around a water gully. What's going on here? Hello, 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 what's all this then? And I wasn't the only person to think that, because apparently it was highly controversial. Allegedly... In the opening night at this sort of like the big red carpet event, more than a 100 people left the cinema. And Rock Hudson, a famous movie star of that time, allegedly was overheard saying, what the hell was that all about? And Arthur C. Clarke has said, has been on record saying, if we answered too many of the questions in this movie, we haven't done our job. And the other one, I'm going to do a draw dotted line here. 2001 A Space Odyssey, actually, when it first, first was released, it was a bit of a flop. It was just such hard sci-fi. It was such intelligent science fiction compared to anything else. Don't forget, this came out nine years before Star Wars did. So... People were used to things like being Crosby and Bob Hope doing gags in spaceships as they go to Mars or, you know, real B-movie fodder with robots and laser guns and a guy standing there clearly in a gorilla suit that's sprayed green with a horn on his head and he's meant to be an alien. It was all a bit shonky, to be honest. I assure you we're not mad. Dr. Phillips, in the course of his experiments, created some kind of living organism that kills... And we'll need a lot of help from you if this island is going to survive. And this was very intellectual and intelligent and philosophical by comparison. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. Basically, people weren't ready for it. Now, technically, it didn't bomb at the box office. Like I said, initially, it didn't do very well, but... It's hard to actually pull all of this together. Look, do you know, I'll tell the story of actually the release of the movie and then we'll go on from there. The movie comes out. People don't really go and see it. However, some studios, some cinemas and movie theatres recognise that it was getting like late night screenings by these young counterculture kids, these sort of hippie types. And... It stayed in the cinema, so it didn't flop and had to be reintroduced. It just hung around, and it gained this momentum with the counterculture. Why? Because talking amongst themselves, there is a sequence in the movie, very much towards the end, where it goes very, to use the term from the 60s, psychedelic. I will tell you where that comes and what, what happens in the movie, but the point is there are all these bright colors and weird noises going on, so if you were under the influence of various illegal narcotics, you would have a very fun time with that, or a very distressing time with that, depending on what your mood was. But lots of kids were basically doing that and, do you know what, theaters don't care what kind of what you're doing in the theater, provided it's not illegal, and if you've already taken your substances, you're not doing anything illegal just sitting there watching a movie. And so, yeah, it was because of that, which was a completely inadvertent sales point of the movie, that is what led to the movie actually making money the first time round. And since then, it's been reappraised countless times and thought to be very, very impressive. The other thing, of course, that helped it was the year later we see man landing on the moon. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for And suddenly, 2001 Space Odyssey looks far less like science fiction and far more like science fact. And yes, that's going to lead me on to the next bit where I said, you know, how it's influenced history. Now, big sigh. There are some people out there that think that the moon landings were faked. I want this sent to Area 51 for study. But, sir, that's where we're building the fake moon landing set. Then we'll have to really land on the moon. The most recent research has shown about 20% of Americans think that it's been faked. Most people seem to think that Stanley Kubrick faked the footage. Why? This is the man who'd done Spartacus. And... Yeah, so that's is is that something that definitely leads to the fake moon landings? No, it doesn't. But people had realized that he'd made a very realistic looking sci-fi movie the year before the moon landing. Now, the original idea of this fakery didn't come in until the 1970s by a guy who ended up self-publishing a book around it. I'm not going to give him any credence. Basically, he doesn't know what he was talking about. People say, oh, you know, he did work in rocket laboratories. Yeah, he did for like a couple of months. He had nothing to do with any of the high-tech stuff. He was not like one of the leading people in NASA. And every single one of his sources has either been debunked or never existed in the first place it's garbage okay but once we got to the internet the internet's not going to stop any kind of conspiracy theory from spreading if anything they come more so you get everything from 9-11's an inside job to jfk was assassinated by pick someone well come with us back to dallas in november 63 be a second gunman the gunman behind the grassy knoll you there mean- assassinate myself. Yeah, it will drive the conspiracy nuts crazy but <laughs> never figure it out. You know, there are endless theories on that one, and then we've got the moon landings as well. Those are perhaps three of the most common conspiracy theories out there. But there are some very, very important facts about why the moon landings actually happened. I won't go into all the technicalities, but here is a few really definitive ones. Firstly, the USSR, which was the deadly rivals of America, congratulated them because they were able, they weren't able to land on the moon with humans. They had actually landed a probe and managed to get some moon dust back. So they were able to do that and they were able to track the Apollo flight up to the moon. So if they had any doubts that it existed, they would have said something at the time. It would have been a major propaganda coup for the USSR. But... No, they didn't. Instead, they congratulated the Americans. Then there are two other really important facts. One, the last Apollo program, Apollo 17, that went to the moon, they left mirrors on the moon, which we bounce lasers off today to measure the distance between the moon and the Earth, and we realize that very, very, very... Very slowly, the moon is slowly moving out of the orbit of Earth. In millions and millions and millions of years, it'll start drifting off into the solar system, and it'll be its own celestial body. So we know that because of the mirrors there. Who put the mirrors there If unless we'd actually landed there? And if you've got a powerful enough telescope, you can actually see things like the tracks from the lunar buggy on the ground, and even the site of the Tranquility Base. So how did all that stuff get there? if they didn't actually go there. That's important. There are loads and loads and loads of other reasons why we definitely landed on the moon. And as Mitchell and Webb very neatly pointed out, if you're going to fake it, you're still going to have to build the rocket and you're still going to have to have the astronauts. In fact, you're going to have to do absolutely everything you need to do to do a moon landing i'm assuming now that greg's going to stick in a a bit of that sketch here we'll need a massive rocket because the first question people will ask when we show them the footage of the moon will be how did you get there so we'll have to be able to say we went in that massive rocket you saw so flipping it around for a moment it is to stanley kubrick's credit that the special effects of this movie was so good, they are used consistently as an excuse as to how the government covered up a thing. And it's just not true. Now, to the modern eye, these are still really quite impressive special effects, but they're not perfect. You know, you see something like Star Wars and it takes special effects a step further. But if you look at the original Star Wars, not the digitally cleaned up one, even that one has its issues. And and so on and so on and so forth. Special effects get better and better over time. But what Stanley Kubrick was able to do in the late 1960s is truly spectacular. And I think we need to give him all the credit. He is one of my favorite directors, and this is one of his jewels, in fact. Did he ever direct a bad movie? Not all of them work nearly as well. I'm looking at you, Eyes Wide Shot and Barry Lyndon, but uh, yeah, he, he is one of the most exciting directors of the 20th century, simple as that. That's to one side. The plot, therefore, of 2001, A Space Odyssey, is kind of hard to describe. I've mentioned the sort of weird patterns and colors on the screen. I've mentioned our ancestors, the hominids. But it has influenced so many things. So I'm going to talk about its influences. There is a bit where you actually get to see the spaceship that they're going on the way to Jupiter. And it's this slow camera crawl along it which is exactly the same as the slow camera crawl across the star destroyer at the beginning of Star Wars 1977 version so it's influenced the look of some science fiction movies and stories but the other thing is that this kind of grandeur this is not one with lots of aliens in it this is not a sci-fi with laser guns and sort of swaggering nerf herders and things like that are you stuck up it. Scruffy looking nerd-parter. It sort of influenced some other intelligent movies, for example, Contact and clearly Interstellar is heavily influenced by 2001. Now, Interstellar, full disclosure, I'm a huge Nolan fan and Interstellar is actually one of my son's favorite movies, full stop. It's one of my wife's favorite movies. And recently I had my nephew over and every evening I was showing him a movie that he just wasn't being able to see, basically. And the last night we were all together, he saw Interstellar. And even though he'd seen... Oh, how about this for a bunch of films that you'd never seen before and then each night you're being introduced to? Aliens, Gladiator, Mad Max Fury Road, and then Interstellar. That's a pretty solid bunch of movies. That's some... some- Interesting, fun evenings in, I hope you would agree. So, he said in the end that Interstellar was his favorite. He's quite scientific, and yeah, that kind of didn't surprise me, but it made my wife glow, because that was her choice, and I picked the other three, and that her choice had won over my three. My nephew did say, the other three aren't bad, but that's sort of more my thing. But, a lot of people say about Interstellar, and this is about the third or fourth time I'd watched it, is each time I like it more... But there's no denying, for me personally, and also for an awful lot of the critics, it doesn't quite hold together at the end. We must confront the reality that nothing in our solar system can help us. In terms of the actual story and logic, it does. But the great thing about 2001, as I said, is it leaves a lot of things unanswered. It leaves a lot of things unsaid. You need to interpret it yourself. So, in the bit when you have Matthew McConaughey in the Tesseract, looking at the sort of the multiple, almost infinite versions of this bookshelf, long story, if you haven't seen Interstellar... (laughs) That made no sense as a sentence. It makes all the sense if you've actually seen the movie. Because he is literally talking through what he's doing, why he's doing it, why it has to happen now, what it's influencing, so on and so forth. And yeah, that's great, except he's just spewing out the plot. And in 2001, similar sorts of things happen with no explanation whatsoever. So you either piece it together yourself or you interpret it your own way. Most people who like these high-concept sci-fi prefer that ambiguity over the explicitness. Now, this is an opinion. If you disagree, good for you. Enjoy Matthew McConaughey talking. And this is by no means a bad film. It's a very good film. The other scene I think that's a bit bad, which just doesn't quite work, and again, most people agree with this, is when he finally meets up with his daughter again, who is now very old. Because there's been time dilation and all this kind of stuff. Again, if you haven't seen the film, I'm sorry I'm giving away stuff at the end. It is an incredibly emotional, powerful, and right moment as he meets his daughter, as they finally caught up together again. That is beautiful and lovely. Except she is in a room with all of her extended family which therefore by extension is all his extended family and the two of them may be having a moment between each other and that's appropriate but the two of them completely ignore the other room full of people and at no point does Matthew McConaughey interact with any of these does nobody want to meet granddad or anything like that it's it's just does the scene work between the two principal characters absolutely but it just feels written because that's not what would happen if a long-lost important member of the family turns up. Nobody's going to ignore them. They're all just going to crowd around him, tell me a story, and surely you'd want to spend a little bit of time with them and meet your great-granddaughter or something like that. So anyway, it's those two scenes that basically damage what is a very mighty attempt at Christopher Nolan trying to stand up next to 2001, and... Maybe not quite succeeding, but certainly, blow for blow, these two are titans of intelligent science fiction. So it does show you that nearly 50 years later, this film is still influencing sci-fi movies. That's how important it is. So it shows you that it's influencing movie history. It's influencing conspiracy history and being tied into the space race, which was never its plan and also, it is trying to show us a little bit of history in and of itself, which, again, I just find really interesting. And it's incredibly ambitious for a movie from the 1960s. And again, it is also worth pointing out that, yes, Stanley Kubrick made some amazing films, but this was basically his first sci-fi film. And, wow, what a what a great one. And And one of the signs why I think he's a great director, like Spielberg. I'm going to say Spielberg is number one, okay, because... Wow, boy, can that man make a movie? When he's on fire, nobody can touch him. And this is the man who literally, he was filming Schindler's List, an Oscar-winning movie, whilst editing Jurassic Park in the evenings, which is a completely different type of movie, which also won Oscars. But, you know, one's pure entertainment, and one is one of the most shocking pieces of history you're ever going to see on film. And he had both those films in his head at the same time. I will give generations because of what you did. I didn't do enough Dr. Grant My dear Dr. Sutton Welcome To Jurassic Park Kubrick You know, you've got Spartacus. If you want sword and sandal epic, Spartacus. You want horror, shining. You want a war movie, well, there's Paths of Glory, or there's Full Metal Jacket. You want sci-fi, there's 2001 A Space Odyssey. You know, there's almost like no genre he can't do, as it were. You You want sort of satire, political satire, comedy, if you like, there's Doctor Strangelove. Just amazing what this man was able to create. So... With that in mind, we're now going to sort of transition into some of the history, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to be bringing up some other Kubrickian stuff as we go along. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. This episode is sponsored by Dark Fantastic Mills. Dark Fantastic Mills produces scenery and terrain for tabletop, role-playing and battle games things like warhammer and dungeons and dragons but there are many more out there and what they do is they have a number of fantastical types of scenery for example they might have a ruined temple complex they might have towers and they have sci-fi elements as well there's an entire ruined Vehicle that you can use as a fighting base around the Star Wars game, for example. They've got lots of things, and you can find it all at darkfantasticmills.com. Or indeed, if you want to see generally what they're up to, it's dark underscore fantastic on Twitter. But the great news is, because they are the official sponsors here of Condensed Histories, that when you go to the checkout, there is a promo code. If you type in condensed, That's it, just condensed as in Condensed Histories. Then you get 10% off your purchase. So go and check out darkfantasticmills.com now. So going back to the opening of this movie, the, it's, it's really the films in three parts. And the first chunk is, as I said, is set at this time of the dawn of humanity. And what's happening is that there is this little hominid community, like I say, in what would be now modern day Africa. This is way before the concept of African continent. They are living together near this sort of watering hole and they're just sort of surviving. And then another group of hominids turn up. Clearly, these hominids are family units of maybe sort of eight to ten per group. They look very much like chimpanzees, but they're not quite. And again, Kubrick apparently spent quite a long time working with these people, making sure apparently they were all kind of physical actors. I think some of them were even like mimes. And they were trying to like mimic the movement of primates rather than humans. Nobody is walking around comfortably on two legs in this opening bit. And what happens is this second group turns up at the watering hole and they're just slightly bigger and slightly more aggressive, and so they bully away the the other group. So the first group, the group that we're kind of rooting for, they get pushed away from the valuable resource of water. Now, it is also worth pointing out that all of this is done with chimpanzee-like shrieks. There is, There are no subtitles, and there is absolutely no language that we would recognize as humans. This is almost like getting a camera and plopping it down in the Serengeti today looking at primate behavior. And yet this was meant to be showing stuff from like uh, two million years ago. So it's really amazing what they're able to do. What happens next is clearly science fiction as the original group who are now, you can just tell from their body language and where they're acting, they're now down on their luck. So they're probably gonna die. They don't have access to the water. But then they all wake up one morning and there is this black monolith just sitting there amongst them all it's just appeared out of nowhere and this is a perfectly cut block of stone it's got perfect right angles it's completely flat and polished and when the light hits it it sort of emits this this noise this beam this of information sort of like goes out to the to the primates and one of them picks up the jaw of like an oxen basically a bone and start smashing it around in other words this monolith has given them the basic idea of like why don't you use tools why don't you improve your survival chances by using the resources around you as weapons and then you see this group of primates turn up we're talking about two million years ago this is the paleolithic era turning up with the jaw of an ox is like a nuclear weapon today. It changes everything. And then they beat up the the bad, or the other group. They're not bad, they're just trying to survive like them. And then there's the most famous bit. This is all done to Thus Spake Zarathustra, the amazing piece of music. And this ape is smashing it up and down in slow motion, smashing this jaw onto bone, smashing them to oblivion, and then throws it up into the air and then one of the most famous cuts in the whole of cinema history. This bone goes up into the air, and then it cuts, and then you see a satellite orbiting Earth. You have just seen the beginning of technology to modern technology in a fraction of a second, and you've just jumped forward two million years, and it kind of makes sense. Now, in the book, it's explicit that that satellite is actually an orbiting nuclear weapons platform. So we've gone from the most simple weapon to the most high-tech of weapon. But even if you don't know that, it's just like, well, that's clearly technology. We've had to put that satellite into space. Aren't we amazing? And that opening section, with no what could be considered meaningful dialogue, that is considered by anthropologists today as the best ever depiction of hominid behavior of the past so in a science fiction movie we've got the best ever depiction of i'm going to use this in inverted commas cavemen and how they actually existed now the whole story of humanity and again kubrick wow what a way to to summarize it the reality is prehistory the story of just homo sapien the animal we are right here right now we're homo sapien as opposed to homo habilis or Homo erectus, or the other one that we all know, Neanderthal, but they're cousins, so we're not direct descendants of them. I know there's a little bit of interbreeding, but anyway, regardless. The point is that even with Homo sapien, there is more time spent as Homo sapien where we weren't writing than history. We've got writing that goes back, give or take, about 5,000 years. That's as far back as we've got any kind of written information and even that was the very first writings in the ancient Mesopotamian civilization. The very first writings was lists of grain and basically lists of resources. It doesn't tell us anything about the society or culture apart from the fact that clearly they were worried about food sources, as all humans are, and also they'd had the intelligence to sort of write down and and mark it out. But we don't know the name of the, the kings at that time or anything like that. So that's pretty amazing. But that only takes us back five thousand years. Homo sapiens are thought to have started around about one hundred and fifty thousand years ago. So that gives you an idea. While well, it's a drop in a bucket, but then if you are going to go back to what Kubrick's depicting, it's two million plus years ago, and you get Australopithecus. Australopithecus would really have been sick of us debating how we're here. They're catching deer, we're catching viruses. Which is one of the most ancient ancestors that we have. Famously, in the 19th and 20th century, there's the reference to the missing link. The reality is, there is no missing link. It's not like we know there are ten stages and we're missing stage number five. It's it's not as simple as that. Why has no one found the missing link between modern humans and ancient apes? We did find it. It's called Homo erectus. Then you have proven my case, sir. For no one has found the link between apes and this Homo erectus. Yes, they have. It's called Homo habilis. Aha! Uh-huh but no one has found the missing link between ape and the so-called Homo habilis. Yes, they have. It's called Australopithecus africanus. What we have are tiny fragments of remains of, like I've mentioned some of these things like, you know, Australopithecus ramidus or Australopithecus heidelbergensis or Homo erectus or whatever. There are all these different ones as we go through time. And basically you can see the brain cavity gets bigger We get more sturdy pelvises, which allow us to walk more upright, and so on and so forth. There are various changes to what was going on. And this is all beautifully summarised and shown in this movie. Then, of course, this is 2001, which today is, whatever, 20 years in the past. So the question is, how much did they get right and how much did they get wrong? Well, undeniably, we don't have regular trips to the moon. Okay, now people have been to the moon and it is interesting that basically the very last trip to the moon happened, I think, just before I was born. So I'm a whole generation where landing on the moon is history and it didn't happen in my lifetime, whereas if I talk to my parents, they were sitting there glued to their screens seeing the remarkable footage of people walking on the moon for the first time and hearing Neil Armstrong's famous words. That was what was going on then. But Kubrick was kind of guessing this a year before. But I remember the first time I saw 2001 A Space Odyssey, there's a certain point where, okay, part one, it's all the hominids. Part two is a trip to the moon where basically something's been discovered on the moon and we need to know what's going on. And so they find out eventually that there's been this excavation and they find one of those black monoliths on the moon again. And again, when the sun hits it, it emits this noise and everybody starts sort of like screaming. And then it cuts and we have this deep space mission heading to Jupiter because the signal was coming from the, the general area of Jupiter. And so, if you like, the most famous bit of 2001 is this later section where there they are on the spaceship. And the spaceship is run by an intelligent AI called HAL, the HAL 9000, which each letter is one below IBM. Now, that could well be a coincidence. You know, again, this is where we get into conspiracy territory. But, you know, HAL 9000, that's just his name with his one red eye. And Kubrick, when it came to writing them, there's a lot of writing on the fly on this movie is what I'm trying to say. And What happened was with Arthur C. Clarke and with Kubrick, they'd come up with more dialogue, but they just realized it was more interesting as they stripped away and stripped away the dialogue. So that there are some scenes where it's not exactly silent cinema. There is an amazing soundtrack. And on that, Kubrick was editing the movie whilst listening to this classical music. And then when it came to putting in the music that he'd actually paid for for the movie, he showed it to a couple of people and they went, oh, why, why did you drop the classical music? like the Blue Danube. And it's like, what do you mean? I I was just listening to that while I was editing it. Well, it's better with that. So if you're wondering why you've got this waltz, which is a really old type of music, you know, it's kind of from the Age of Enlightenment, and yet it's being played as a spaceship docks with a space station. Well, the argument is, first of all, it's beautifully edited together to that music, but also there is this dance between the spaceship and the space station as they have to try and get into sync with each other that is literally something that happens also in interstellar as well so again showing this sort of reference there and also another fact about interstellar hans zimmer did the music for it and he said he was so fed up of people using strings to show sort of grandeur and sort of like having almost like an orchestra he wanted a different sound he wanted it to be kind of classical but he was not just going to have You know, the strings shrieking out to to create a sense of, of epicness. And so instead he chose to use an organ, like a church organ. And it has this very distinctive soundtrack to Interstellar in the same way that 2001 has its own very distinctive soundtrack, which does use the strings for the record. So we are now with Hal going off into space. And when I first saw it, I'm getting back to it. When I first saw it, I wondered as you saw a couple of the astronauts talking to each other on the space station, why are their monitors wonky? They're not properly lined up on their tables. And in the 1980s when I watched it, it's just like that that's an unusual error in something that I'm watching and I can see the pristine nature, the precision of this movie making. Then I watched it about 10 years ago. And I was watching that exact same scene and went, oh, my God. Although clearly the technology for the 1960s, they've taken a color TV and built it into the desk that they're sitting in front of. That's how they did the trick, as it were. It's not meant to be part of the desk. These two people have got iPads. They've got tablets. Kubrick had worked out the idea that in the future we'll have wafer-thin TVs, basically, from... 1968 that is amazing also frequently there are video calls in this movie now admittedly nobody's got a cell phone mobile phone or a smartphone or anything like that but that is again amazing and kubrick went to nasa just like christopher nolan also went to nasa and asked them to help design things so they didn't look like b-movies where a green gorilla suit would be jumping out at some point and it all looks a bit naff he wanted it to look as realistic as possible where it is science fiction all these things to create long-term interstellar travel they all have these kind of suspended animation things you either need hyperspace think star wars or star trek even or you have to have people sort of like going to sleep which is stuff that you see in Aliens and stuff that you see in Interstellar and stuff that you see also in 2001 A Space Odyssey. So those are the two things, and because they're not going to have hyperspace, that's too unrealistic. Instead, you've got these people doing suspended animation. So it is amazing what they're doing in this. That is going to be scientific fact in the future, but also they get things wrong as well. We've yet to be able to perfect things like suspended animation that's, that's not a thing that, that we can actually do yet but what's interesting going back to the script is they start Kubrick started playing around with the fact that he gave more emotional lines to Hal the AI than anybody else it's rather difficult to define perhaps I'm just projecting my own concern about it most of the humans when they're talking they're talking very much about process what are we going to do how are we going to get there what's happened not how are you feeling or i'm angry or something like that any of the emotion not not any that's a bit too far but most of the emotion is actually coming from the computer which means that when again spoiler for a film that's over 50 years old here when hal starts going a bit crazy then you're a bit conflicted, but also it makes it a really tense movie because he's the AI running the whole ship. He's smarter, and he's got more resources than just the, the couple of spacemen that are on the, the astronauts that are on the ship that, are, that aren't asleep, not part of this or suspended animation. It is just a masterpiece of tension, of special effects, practical effects, sound effects even. Kubrick was also one of the first people to show that there is no noise in a vacuum. There are certain scenes where there is no noise. Think about things like gravity has been very good at showing that. Similarly, Interstellar has shown that. But you've got Kubrick doing it very well. By comparison, in Star Wars in 1977, there are like blasts all over the place in the space battle outside of the Death Star. None of that noise would carry. And my favorite bit is, and again, this is to create excitement okay let's not criticize star wars 1977 star wars for being you know anything other than what it is pure entertainment but the thing to watch out for is as the x wings go into the trench to do the trench run as they swoop in there is literally like lightning and thunder going off and it's like this is space that just wouldn't be a sound that would travel so there's that going on so 2001 ends up doing this weird so they eventually get to jupiter And then they take a pod and they basically go through the Stargate. Now, it's never called anything. And you get these sort of really weird colors. This is the one bit of the movie that back in the 60s they loved doing their illegal substances to. And this is the bit nowadays where it does test your patience because it goes on for a minute after a minute after a minute. And you get the point. It does not need to be seven plus minutes long. I think if you give us one minute of this weird stuff, I get the idea. He's going on a journey. He's going to a different dimension. He's, he's traveling faster than than space and sound and light and whatever. It doesn't need to go on like that. So I always say that 2001: A Space Odyssey is my favourite film where I fast forward through a bit because I get it. I just thought, and then there's the last bit, which is also done basically silently certainly there's no dialogue and again you need to add your own interpretation to it i think some of it's pretty obvious but the very last shot of the movie wow there are so many ways that you can do it you i've heard religious people saying that the whole thing is a religious allegory and it's basically kubrick saying you need to have faith and there are other people that i know who are atheists saying. That it's absolutely an atheist allegory and it proves that you whatever you do you don't trust in something supernatural it's all about science and how you can pull the polar opposite points from exactly the same movie shows you how enigmatic it is which if that sounds frustrating i get that i hear you and we're back to the original reviews of the movie in 1968 but If you don't want to be spoon fed, if you like the sense of wonder, if it's been a long time since you've seen the film, or maybe this is one of these movies where you sat there and thought, everyone talks about it. I really do need to get around and watch it. Well, treat yourself. okay? it takes a while. It even has an intermission. It's that long, which, again, for a 1960s film is really very rare, particularly for science fiction. But go on this journey because I think it's an odyssey. It is a journey. It is not a sort of three act you know, guy meets girl, guy loses girl, guy gets girl back again type of story. It's more human humanity's place in the universe, and it doesn't get bigger as a story than that. So, look, as always, please do the subscription stuff. Give us a review. It would be great. Spread the word. Uh, You know, every Tuesday, I tell everybody what the latest episode is on Twitter. I'm at jemdaduch on Twitter. Please sort of shout out. That would be great and lovely, and I I love you. Thank you so much. But I would really encourage you that even if you've seen this film, this is one of these films where, because it's got so many different things going on, I might have shown you things where you hadn't really noticed it, particularly things like the dialogue. Maybe you want to watch it again to, to check that out. If you've never seen it, boy do I envy you, because you're going to go on quite the journey. I'm sorry, I've spoiled some of the beats, but really, it's the journey, not the destination on this one, okay? Trust me on that. And with that, I'm going to say thank you very much, and another episode coming soon. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable.